0: is that going to be about gospel hypocrites what is it to be a gospel hypocrite what do I mean by that well what do we mean about the gospel first of all Galatians the book of Galatians we're in a short series seven weeks in the book of Galatians and in the book of Galatians I've titled the whole series gospel matters the gospel is everything to us the good news what is that gospel that gospel that matters, that that good news from God. It's, it's God's message, not ours. So we, it's not ours to tamper with. It's God's gospel that rescues us. It's a gospel that's without any works. It's good news from God because our rescue does not depend on us. It depends on God. This is what God has done for us. Ours is simply to receive accept, receive as a gift, his rescue of us. Now, it's a gospel that is is without works on our part, but it is a gospel, it is a good news that does work. It works. We saw last week that there was a change in Paul. Paul's life was turned upside down by the gospel. It changed everything about his life. We would expect the same. If this... Gospel of God is a powerful gospel. If it's a gospel that works, then it does its work in us. It transforms us. It changes us. Life is different. We want life to be different. How many of you want life to be different? Want life to be richer, deeper, fuller than it is? You don't want to struggle with things that you struggle with. You don't want to be disappointed in yourself by the things that you're disappointed in yourself in. You want to to. Plan less and trust more. You want a freedom to 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 go and to do whatever it is that God sets before you, without the things that that hinder you from that. Would you like that? Would you like? We say, well, I don't want to say I'd like that because that would say that I really don't have that. And then, what would the other people here think of me? Uh, that's part of the problem, isn't it? We're 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 frozen often by. The fear of what others think of us, it has an influence. Us sometimes the desire for different, the desire for transformation, the desire that as a believer and a follower of Christ, my life is supposed to be different, it should be different, our desire for that transformation goes a little sideways. We we pursue that transformation, but out of the wrong, on the wrong basis or out of the wrong supply, out of the wrong source. By the wrong resources, we pursue that change, that transformation out of myself rather than out of a savior who has rescued me. I become, rather than a, a, a believer in the gospel, I become a gospel hypocrite. What is it that makes the Christian life Christian? How is it that this Christian life is Christian? What is, what is this, this um, what is it about what we do? For, what is it about a, a sermon? You're going to hear a message from Pastor Bob this morning. He's going to talk, and this is, this is a Christian sermon. It's going to deal with some things about how we then live. What makes it, that challenge, that exhortation, or that encouragement distinctly Christian? There's another group meeting on Sunday morning just down the road from us. I understand they're very moral people. They live very upright and just, seemingly righteous lives by and large. It's the reputation they have as a group. And yet they're not Christian as we understand a follower in Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, God in, in flesh. They don't follow him. They don't live by means of him. Would a message there this morning about how we then live, would that be a Christian message? There's a group a little further down. What makes my sermon different this morning than a sermon in a synagogue? Well, it was yesterday rather than today. I guess that would be different. What makes anything that I would say about how we then live any different than what you might hear from Dr. Phil or Dr. Laura? or whoever else on talk radio that seems to make good, rational, reasonable sense today. What would be different, what would be distinctly Christian about what I would say as compared to what they would say? That's what would would make it a gospel message, a gospel-centered life then, that is actually gospel-based worship rather than hypocrisy. Let me review the good news. We sang the song, and I wanted to jump up in the middle of this. We started singing, We Believe. Well, this is what we believe. We believe in chapter 1 and verse 3 of, of the book of Galatians. It says, We believe that grace and peace come to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, from this present fallenness. That's, where evil, that's what evil is, from the garden forward. He does this according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. On in our lives from now into eternity is glory to the Father in his rescue of us. Now, rescue is not for me. When you hear that term rescue, what does that suggest? Rescue suggests that I needed to be rescued by somebody else. Somebody else acts to rescue me. I'm the one who needs to be rescued. Now, in the midst of a rescue, think of a, think of a lifeguard. Think of a lifeguard. And you, you have somebody who's, who's drowning, who, who needs to be rescued. And what's going on? They're wildly flailing, arms going everywhere, and they're kicking and they're screaming, they're going down. The lifeguard gets close and the lifeguard might get clobbered. The best thing the person who's being rescued can do is strive as hard as they can to help save themselves, right? No, no. That's going to get in the way of the rescue. The best thing the person being rescued can do is to rest in and trust in the Savior, the one who is rescuing them, that he is going to bring them, or in the case of a lifeguard, he or she is going to rescue them and bring them all the way home. Right? Flailing around and beginning to, once I think, once I, think I can help, helping isn't helping. How does that relate to if, we, if I have been rescued, if the Christian, if not only the, that point of salvation and being right with God, but even the continuing in relation with God, if that is because of Christ rather than because of me, how does that rescue analogy play out? I want to remind us of, of the breadth of the Christian life, that we think, we terms of we often think about salvation, being rescued by grace. We often take that in terms of saved from God's judgment or hell, and now we're saved, and when we die, we're going to go to heaven. But God's grace and eternal life is not merely a future prospect. Jesus said, the one who believes on me has everlasting life, not will have everlasting life, but has already everlasting life. What does that mean? I want to remind you of of another dimension which perhaps you've, you've, you've heard before, you've read some of these verses before. I just want to put up several verses on the screen and just remind us of when you think about God's saving grace, God's power for us, which we did not have for ourselves. When you think about God's salvation in those terms, I want you to think about it in terms of not merely a transferring from judgment and hell into a future in heaven in God's presence, but a living in God's presence even now by God's power. You see, there's a tension. There's a tension. There's a balancing. There's a correction going on in Galatians that that um, is putting a contrast between between um, works, my works, my own effort, and faith trusting God. There's a balance between my human ability my hu- natural humanity called flesh and the spirit of the living God and those those two are in tension with one another it's flesh or spirit we're really going to see that come out in chapter five the, let me just run through some of these verses they just take I want to take our concept of salvation and make it more than future and what God does for us is more than just in the future okay let's go jude chapter jude Well, there's only one chapter. Verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and great joy. Emphasize the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. It's an ongoing thing. God is able to do that for you. Next verse. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. We know this one in relation to salvation. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not of works so that no one can boast. To God be the glory in my salvation, my right standing before him. We call that justification. My right or just standing before God. Not of works so no one could boast. For we are God's workmanship. This is verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. But I'm not my own workmanship. I'm not my own best project now. I'm not the one finishing this thing that God started. No, I am God's workmanship. I'm God's project. He used to say back when I was younger, which was a long time ago, he used to say that, you that, um, be patient, God's not finished with me yet. And that was a while ago, but I suppose it's still true. It's but I'm his project, and he is doing his work. I yield, I cooperate with the work that God is doing in me. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we than all that we ask or even imagine, according to his power that is at work in us. Whose strength? Whose power? Whose energy? Whose dynamic? It's God's power in me. That's the Christian life. Okay, there's a couple more. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. In this mortal flesh, in this weakness, in the midst of my inability, the spirit of the living God dwelling now in me gives life. There's life in this weakness. That's how I'm saved in, in, in my fallenness. I'm rescued in this present evil age by the spirit of the living God who enlivens me and will give life even in this mortal body. Okay, a couple more. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it all the way to the day of Jesus Christ, all the way to in gathered into his presence. He will finish it. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Philippians 2, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation, that which is true concerning you, work it out, live it out, and you do that by obedience, responding to the truth that you know from God, for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good purpose. And can I suggest to you, if the Spirit were not working in us, we would not be willing, we would not be doing, we would not be obeying, we wouldn't probably care. But God has put his own life in us, and he causes us to hunger and thirst after him. He causes us to want and to walk with him and to be less satisfied with self and to want that transformation, that wanting it like we do, we, sometimes we can slide into it sideways, which is the thrust I want to get to today. We saw last week, last week early in chapter 2, that the apostles got together. Peter, James, and John were there in Jerusalem, and for another reason... For another reason, Paul and some others from, from, um, from the church at Antioch, they went up to Jerusalem. And while they were there, Paul compared notes and told the story of what God had been doing among the nations, among these non-religious, non-Jewish background peoples in the city and how he was bringing them to faith in Christ and how he was turning lives upside down and in Jerusalem. They rejoiced. Peter, James, and John, they rejoiced. And they they celebrated together what it was that God was doing. And not long after that, Peter had to go to Antioch for himself. He had to see this thing for himself. But even Peter, who there with James and John in Jerusalem celebrated with Paul what God was doing, even Peter, just a little bit later, got sidetracked. And that's the story. He backtracked a little bit, and that's the, that's the story that we're going read to read and tell today. The story of Peter at Antioch. An- 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 Peter comes to Antioch, and there he's visiting, and he's engaging with these Gentiles, and he knows this. He had a vision himself in Acts chapter 10. God brings this sheet down. There's all these unclean animals, and, and Peter says, No, no, Lord, I can't eat any of that. The, the Lord has told him in this vision, Take and eat. C- kill these animals and eat them. And according to the law, these are animals that a Jewish person should not eat. Peter says, "I haven't done anything against the law. I, I can't do that. I can't go against your law, Lord." And the Lord says, "What I have made clean, don't call unclean." So, I've made that clean Did three times to emphasize the vision. Peter has seen this for himself. He go, and he's happy. You know, Peter's able to eat bacon and eggs in Antioch. Peter's able to have a ham and cheese sandwich. You know, some of the guys are saying, "Oh, but better." You know, my wife's on a on a on a dairy free diet right now, so she would say, "Hold the cheese." Some of the Jewish people in Antioch were saying, "Oh, could you hold the ham on that?" But Peter was able to say, "Stack that ham on, man! Yeah, he was able to freely engage in in and eat with Gentiles, uncircumcised people who 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 could be unclean. Man, it was just like, well, Jesus used to eat with tax collectors and sinners. It was it was something scandalous like that. But then, along the way, there came a there came some Jewish people from Jerusalem and they were concerned. And there's a lot of what 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 caused people what what it seems to be is a historical situation that if word got out that these Christians who the Christians in Jerusalem were Jewish people they were already being persecuted. If the word got out that these, quote, Christian or Messianic Jews were encouraging an abandoning of the law, that would cause their own Jewish people around them in Jerusalem to persecute the Jerusalem church even more. And so sensitive to that, Peter withdraws. It seems to make good sense. It seems to be a good reason I don't want to cause additional pressures upon these followers of Jesus back in Jerusalem. So I don't want the church in general, Christians in general, to get a word that we don't care about the law. So he withdraws. And the other Jewish believers with him, even Barnabas pulls back, pulls back from from the free fellowship and the bacon. Can you imagine sacrifices that Peter was making? What seemed like a good idea, and yet, and yet, what he's done is he's veered off the gospel, and the gospel matters. And there's a principle at stake here that Paul recognizes, somebody who knew the law better than any of them probably but he knew there was something much greater at stake, and that was the basis of the gospel itself, not only for how we are received into God's presence and made accepted by him, but how we live in God's presence, how we live out God's presence in the midst of this fallen world. He said that's in danger by this action. If we withdraw back into law-keeping as the basis of what makes us good, what makes God pleased with us, if we embrace that mindset, the gospel is in danger of being lost. And certainly we will not have the freedom to live in it. That's what's going on. That's what's going on in, in this passage that we're now going to just read through. There's five ways that I've seen in here, five ways that, that Paul responds with Peter. And so we're going to go kind of one at a time and look at those ways that we are in danger too. Of being a gospel hypocrite. Because if it could happen then, for seemingly good reasons, we could veer away from God's grace and rely more upon ourselves and what we do and don't do. If it could happen then, it can happen now. If it could happen there in Antioch, it could happen here at Brush Prairie. If it could happen to Peter, who knew the gospel well, it could also happen to me. It could happen with you. You and I, like Peter, could be in some sense, in some ways, gospel hypocrites. You say, we'd be in good company. We'd be with Peter. And yet there was a time when Peter's zealousness to please God actually took him away from the will of God rather than toward it. Remember that? Remember when Jesus himself had to, had to say to Peter, "Get me get behind me, Satan, because you're, what you're asking, what you're thinking is not is not the will of God, but the will of the enemy." well could be in danger of being hop, gospel hypocrites. What would it look like? Okay, let me read the first the first section, the first four verses of Galatians chapter 2, and uh, we're in if you're using a pew Bible, I want you to follow along. Just have a Bible open, you can follow along if that's helpful. Um, I want you to see that this is God's word, not Bob's word because Bob's word is not nearly as good as God's word. So Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11 if you're using a pew Bible, we're on page 824. When Peter came to Antioch I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, ham sandwiches. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, I take that circumcision group not to be Jewish Christians, but Jewish people in general. So that's the, that's the way I understand that. I'm not, I'm not going to go deeply into it, though. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy. Other Jewish Christians joined him in this withdrawing, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, they seemed to be doing something right. But they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Okay, first thing, the first thing about being a gospel hypocrite or how not to be a gospel hypocrite is don't gossip, engage. You notice what Paul does right out of the start here. What Paul does is he, he said, I, I, I confronted him in the presence of all those who were going astray. I didn't stand up and point out Peter's fault in front of the whole church. No, I went and talked to Peter openly in front of all of those who had withdrawn with him. And, but he confronted him directly. He said, I opposed him not, among others, I opposed him to his face. I am a gospel hypocrite if I talk to others about you instead of talking to you about Christ. I'm a gospel hypocrite if I'm talking to others about what I see in you that I don't think is right, rather than talking to you about Jesus, who is the one who makes what is not right, right. I'm a gospel hypocrite if I'm noticing and talking around. Don't gossip. Engage. You know, we are strengthened by one another. We are a body of Christ. And we are strengthened by speaking truth in love to one another for the building up of one another. I love it when people come and talk to me, even when they think I have missed it. I have blown it. I have messed up. I'm letting them down or whatever. Oh, sometimes there's some encouraging words in there, too. But I love it when people talk to me. And oftentimes, even if I don't agree with fully where they're coming from, there's something there that I need. Maybe it's just that little something that I think is what I need is all that I'm able to bear right now. So that's all that I really get out of it at that point. But I'm strengthened faithful are even the wounds of a friend proverbs says we need to engage with one another do we care about one another enough to speak up and tell the truth speaking truth in love ephesians 4 says but engaging rather than gossiping okay number two i say out of those same verses verses 11 to 11 to 13 be a missionary, not a monk. Now, first I think about monks, I think about that withdrawing, that isolating, that pulling back out of the evil world into a safe place, like church and church friends, and church activities, where there aren't any evil influences around me, and I end up isolating myself from the people around me who need the gospel of Christ grace. We are called this not just Rob and Laura. We are called, all of us, to be on mission, to take this gospel and to make disciples of all nations. We have been given a mission, and that mission is to take the good news of salvation in Christ to the people around us that need. How will we do that if we idolize ourselves from it? But, you know, it's a dangerous world out there. Once I wrote this line, I thought about a, a TV show. Does anybody know the TV show Monk? Monk is a paranoid, obsessive-compulsive detective, former police detective, but his inability to get around dirt at all, any kind of germs or things that are messy and so forth, he's just, it's, he's so obsessive, compulsive, paranoid about that, that it debilitates him. He can't be a police detective anymore, but he's so valuable that, well, I wanted to, I wanted to bring Monk with me this morning. So just, just a brief, just the intro, I want to introduce you to Monk when I say, be a missionary, not a Monk. It's a jungle out there. There is, there is evil, there is ugly, and there are things that I, sh- I should not be involved in. And yet, none of us should isolate ourselves. Now, the same places are not the places that any of us and all of us should go to. Let me give you an example. This is not even a place to go, so it should be a fairly safe example. Let's talk about credit cards some of you don't have any credit cards and that's a good thing you shouldn't have credit cards some of you who have credit cards shouldn't have credit cards you don't you don't you don't practice safe credit card usage your credit card is a danger to you it's a temptation to you, you become enslaved by the debt that you I am I think it's because I'm cheap but I don't like to pay bills and so I, I don't like having a credit card bill. I don't know that I've had a credit card bill that had a balance, and I can't even remember when. It's been a long, 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 long time. Having a credit card is not, for me, a temptation at all to get into debt of spending money that I don't have. For, for many of us in America, and probably, probably safe to say for most people in America, It is. The credit card itself is not necessarily evil. Well, the interest rate they charge is evil, but the credit card itself is not necessarily evil. And, uh, and it's not to say that everybody, in fact, I shouldn't tell you this, but the church gives me a credit card. Go figure. But the deal is it's paid off every month. And there's there's certain reasons that I keep a credit card. And you could say, well, you could do that with a debit card. Yeah, yeah, you could, you could, you could, you could. But I've, I've I'm just... I don't like using a debit card online. But anyway, the point is, a credit card itself is not, is not an evil thing, but it creates a lot of evil and pain. It's a difficult thing for many people, and it's better for many people not to have one, not because of the credit card, but because of me or you. Or, okay, I don't want to get too personal. Maybe gambling is a problem. You shouldn't go to casinos. Some people love to go to casinos because there's a great buffet there. Really? Okay. Okay. Uh, good stewardship, right? Yeah, you get a lot of food for your money. Okay. Okay. We could go into drinking. We could go into a lot of things that are, that are debatable things in, in our, and that are real issues for some people. There are people that should not go into any kind of a lounge where alcohol is around because of the draw that that's going to be to them. And there are other people, but it's not an issue for at all. I don't drink. I've had alcoholism near in the family and there's something about that. There's twofold. I've seen that side of it. and I don't want it. And also I've been warned, hey, if you if you have alcoholism in your family, that's one of the danger signs. So advice to you would be don't drink. I said, okay, well, that's pretty good advice. I get started there. Who knows? I might be looking in the mirror and seeing something that I didn't like. So I choose, d- does that mean that nobody should drink at all? No. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does say don't get drunk. And if I'm inclined toward having a problem of getting drunk, what? I shouldn't drink. But you see how rules and law, and yet there's, there's susceptibilities, there's, there's weaknesses that we have, but we don't want to overall isolate ourselves. You shouldn't go to the same place I could go. I shouldn't go to some of the places you could go, etc., but we, as a, as a people, should not isolate ourselves behind a fortress of safety so that we become no missional good to a society around us that desperately needs Jesus. And be a missionary, not a monk. Uh, third one, foster forgiveness, not failure. Looking from verse 14 through 16. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, that we live, our lives should demonstrate, should live out, should look like the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter in the front of the mall, you're a Jew. How do you live like a Gentile? You live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law. A man is not right before God by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus rather than doing the law so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one is justified, no one is made right before God. He's going to specify that even clearer. From standing before God into, if you begin by faith, how do you think you can now be perfected by the Spirit? That's the conclusion he's going to make immediately following this section in chapter 3. But what am I doing? Am I fostering forgiveness or failure? Am I setting somebody up? Keep these rules and you will live a good Christian life. I am stirring, Romans 12, or rather Romans chapter 7 tells me, by establishing rules that make for a good Christian life, I am setting them up for failure because that law will stir up the rebellion inside us. That doesn't mean we just leave We're just left to ourselves. We live by the Spirit rather than by the law. That's the point he's going to make in chapter 5 and also in chapter 3. But in the meantime, in the meantime, if I expect others to live up to standards that I don't even keep fully myself, I am a gospel hypocrite. That's what Peter says. Peter's going to go back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 in this argument that, well, what should? Should all the church be keeping the law? What should we do? And he says, gentlemen, do not put a yoke upon Christians that we, ne- we nor our forefathers have been able to bear. A standard of rightness in rules and laws and regulations and traditions is only going to be a standard that we will not keep, and we will teach ourselves to be hypocrites, pretending that we keep it for the sake of the opinion of others When we do not, we can't bear it. Those are Peter's words, not mine. In fact, that law, Romans 7, that law itself stirs up sin. Not because law is bad. The law is an expression of God's righteous character. But the law stirs up rebellion in me and shows that there's sin there. And I don't want to enable sin. I don't want to strengthen sin. I don't want to empower it. So I'm not going to give it a list of the things that I'm not supposed to do that it can be attracted by and it can be strengthened by. I'm going to rather live in forgiveness instead of setting myself and others up for failure. Isn't it interesting in Jesus' life, he, he often... He, he often went against the normal traditional understanding of the law of his day. His disciples were, were caught working and threshing grain on the Sabbath as they took kernels and they rubbed them between their palms in order to eat this grain from the field as they were passing through. And he says the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. And yet there are times when he takes the law the expression of the law, and he says, this is, the char- this is the expression of the character of God. And he takes it much further. He takes it away from the specific things that you do, like do not commit adultery. He says, yeah, but have you looked at a woman? Have you looked at a woman? If you've looked at a woman with desire in your heart, in your heart you have already committed adultery. And they focus on the Ds. No, no, don't do the Ds. And Jesus said, actually, it's a matter of the heart. And out of the heart come the actions we are got to change the heart. And the problem with law is it cannot change the heart. It can't change the heart. And that's what I need. I need a heart change. I need a heart transplant desperately. And that's where I'm going to live by faith and not works. This is the core of, 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 of Galatians chapter 2. It's really the core of the, of the book as a whole. So let me press into from verse 17. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners... Does that mean that Christ is promoting sin? Because he shows us to be the sinners that we are? Is, is following Christ and abandoning a, a sense that I can be good enough? Is that, that mean that Christ is, is, is promoting lawlessness? No, not at all. But if I rebuild what I destroyed... I prove that I am a lawbreaker. If I bring law in after it's already been destroyed by faith in Christ, I make myself a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There was a bombing in Boston. I I, I suppose everybody in the room has heard about it. And one of the men, apparently, who, who was one of the two bombers, the two brothers, one of them has been arrested. He'll eventually be tried. We expect he'll probably be convicted. Justice will have its day. Justice will run its course. What is going to happen to the other brother? What's going to happen to the older brother, who seems to be the mastermind of the thing? What's going to happen to him? What is the law going to do against him? nothing not a thing the law has absolutely no claim on that older brother do you know why because he's died he's dead laws authority ends there and so it has with you and i did i really die in christ has law any law's claim on me in that sense, as far as my accountability before God for violating his law, all of that ended when I died in Christ. His death is that full. His death is that rich. His death is that sufficient that all of my accountability before God, according to his law and his righteousness, ends at my death in Christ. I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. Yet it's not me, it's Christ now lives in me. The spirit of the living God dwells inside those who believe in him. And the life which I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me to rescue me from this present evil this present age of fallenness. You see how the seed of the gospel was in that phrase and it begins to be fleshed out as we get further into the book of Galatians that I live because of Christ in me. So I want to cultivate that relationship. Rather than having a rule, I want to cultivate this relationship of the living God who lives in me. You know, we often think of it this way. An illustration I heard a few years ago that really resonated with me. Imagine your garage Is your garage full of stuff? If it's not, imagine your neighbor's garage. You know, the one when you open the door, you can't see two feet in because it's full of stuff. Okay, well, imagine your garage is like that. And you come into your garage... And Jesus is at the other side of the garage. And you say, Lord, I'm, 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 I'm coming over there. I want to be close to you. I'm just going to get all this stuff cleared out of the way. God, i got a lot of junk in my garage, and I'm going to get all this stuff cleared out of the way so that I can be close to you, Lord, because I want to be close to you. It won't take long. I'm going to get this stuff cleared up. How's your garage looking? It's still like it was several years ago, isn't it? Life is like that, Our stuff. And yet, that view of how I will get the stuff out of the way so that I will be close to Jesus. That's a gospel hypocrite. Because he died to to bring me close to him. And it rather looks like this. It's Jesus who puts his arm around me. Jesus embraces me and he says, Bob, we got to talk about the garage. We open the door a little bit, and we look at all this, and I just want to cringe away. He says, don't worry. Don't worry. We're going to work through this stuff. I am going to lead you through this stuff. I am going to help you sort out all of the stuff in your garage, but you're not going to do it to get to me. I am going to be with you, and I'm going to lead you through and out of this mess. Wouldn't you love to have Jesus help you clean up your garage? Yeah, yeah. The, the, we have this mindset that if we can only get some stuff sorted out, we'll be closer to him. And he says, I, would, I, I want to come near to you. And then we will transform. We will change, but not on your power, on my power. Not on the flesh, but out of the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus, he... he Paul admits in chapter 5, he, he lays it out. This is what the works of the flesh, this is what humanity looks like, and it's messy and it's ugly. And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is. And against the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. There's no law there. That leads us into the last one. Press toward the center, not the boundaries. Look at verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God. If righteousness could be gained by law, If righteousness could be gained by law, then Christ died for nothing. Christ didn't need to die if I could be good enough. I can't be good enough. The essence of Christianity is that, and that is why, then, if I'm focused on the boundaries and not and not transgressing over those boundaries, if I focus on the boundaries of the rules and the law, I'm denying the essence of why Christ died, which is that I cannot keep boundaries. If I could somehow keep myself within the bounds, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. He would, he would have just said, Stay within the boundaries, stupid. Just, just stay within the boundaries. Can't you get it? Look at the boundaries. He could paint a big white line. That would have said, "I'll stay in the boundaries." I can't stay in the boundaries. I can't stay in the boundaries. And the Spirit of a living God lives within me. And you know, He doesn't tell me. He doesn't focus on the boundaries. He points me to the center. I am a gospel hypocrite when I say I am trusting Jesus, but my focus is always on something else instead of Him. If I am pressing toward the center, I don't have to worry about the boundaries. If I live in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Against the fruit of the Spirit, there are no boundaries because I'm in the center. What I would suggest to you, you want transformation we want our lives to be different but not hypocritically so not pretending not trying and struggling to be better people we want our lives to be to be different spiritually changed transformed and what I would say to you is press toward the center look at the Lord Jesus that's why we worship that's why we, we unfold his glory in the songs that we sing. We remind ourselves and we remind one another who our Savior is. Because when our eyes are on him instead of ourselves, when we desire him, when we long to walk with him, that will take us away from the boundaries. Press us toward the center. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, We we want to be known not by what boundaries we keep, but by whose company we keep. We want to be known, Lord, as people who know you. We want to be known, Lord, as people like those early disciples that when they talked to others, there was something about them that they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Lord, Lord, we are like them, untrained and simple people in ourselves. And yet, we would like there to be a, a resemblance of Jesus that you are working in us. We, we would like, Lord, to be drawn by your spirit, pressed by you to, to know you from your word. Lord, to hear the voice of your spirit provoking us to give something of ourselves to somebody else. And, Lord, to take that step of obedience and follow it. And as we do that, as we walk with you in the likeness of Jesus our Savior, following his steps, because we want to be with him, we want to know him, Lord, would you do your changing work in us? Get our eyes, Father, off of ourselves and rather onto our Savior. And as we look to him, might we then look like him more in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respect-